Welcome to Super Fantastic Nerd Hour, episode 37. We're talking Pulp Fiction and its 20th anniversary. This is Ali Matu, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, AJ Conrad. How's it going, Conrad? Going well. Hello, Ali. How are you? Doing pretty good. It's are, are, uh, are, are, How are you uh, holding up with all the wedding preparation madness? Well, this is why I was looking forward to recording today, because it's been kind of a stressful week. Um, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about uh, nerdy wedding stuff on Later. our next episode. Um, but yeah, I was looking forward to getting a break from all that stuff It's because it's been pretty busy. Cool. Well, and- I'm happy to give you that break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so did so- you did, so what we're talking about today, we're talking about Pulp Fiction because it is um, an anniversary now. Of almost, this film. O- almost, October almost. October fourteenth. We're ahead of the game a little bit, as we tend to be on Nerd Hour. That's okay. That's okay. Um, but uh, and what's what's in our crossover this week? In our crossover, we are pitting Pulp Fiction against Sin City, and oh, talking about which film uses the nonlinear um, storytelling device to better serve um, the story. Basically. Oh man, that's going to be fun. Um uh, I and I mean those two movies and then those two directors, that's that's going to be a lot of fun. And then our top 5 um include our top 5 non-linear movies. Um uh, yeah. and Conrad, it's been like so we've got Pulp Fiction this week, non-linear movies this week. We had Lost last week. We had Doctor Who a few weeks ago. Oh man, a lot of Timey-wimey. A lot of timey-wimey <laughs> stuff. Well, you know what I realized, even in thinking about this film and, and you know, when we when we talked about doing this episode, is is how much this film has impacted a lot of other filmmaking. Um, oh, totally. And, you know, Quentin Tarantino, this film just totally put him on the map. I mean, I had seen Reservoir Dogs before I saw this. So I knew who he was. It's why I wanted to see this, in the, and I saw this in the theater. Yes, I did. Um, nice. I believe I may have even seen this opening night in the theater Whoa. when I was wait, in wait. Boston. When you when and it, it was an art, out. it was an art house. It was not like a mainstream movie theater. Um, so I definitely I waited in line to see it, and it was interesting because I know that I had a, a couple friends, um, and I, at this moment in time, I'm not remembering who went to see this with me, um, but they didn't even know what this was going to be. <laughs> So yeah. I had some inkling what because I had seen Reservoir Dogs, obviously. Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, but, yeah. So but, you knew the director a little bit going into it. Yeah, but I I had not really prepped them properly, and and we'll go into this experience a little later. Oh um, no! <laughs> but um, in any case, it it was a, a great experience, and then in just in thinking about this film and others that came after, you know, Quentin Tarantino with this film, just in the way that it was received, it was just a very different way of of viewing things and of showing things in in storytelling. And you can see these influences. um, He heavily influenced a lot of things. And even when I was coming up with my top five, I was like, wow. No, Um, no, my top five is heavily influenced, I think, by Pulp Fiction. Right. but yeah, by I that mean, that by that mode of storytelling, I mean it wasn't new. I mean Annie Hall had used oh, this. Yeah, Annie obviously Hall did this there very there well. are classic films that have used this this storytelling trick. But um, but it's the that postmodern element of the film. It's the film 
sort of breaking the molds of the narrative structure. It's it's it commenting on on culture, commenting on film. It it's very meta and and film geeky and well, that's kind of why I think uh, like I was really glad that you had suggested we talk about this is because it is it is a super super geeky film. Um, yes, there is there are a lot of references. Uh, Quentin Tarantino has this huge love of of film of filmmaking of storytelling he loves martial arts films and he loves like he he loves incorporating elements from exploitation films you know like that's why it's called pulp fiction um but you know there and and there are things that he has incorporated into his storytelling that show and not just not just a dork about about these kinds of films but you you are probably aware he is a huge star wars fan um, and Star Trek and Star Trek and the um, beginning of Kill Bill, right? Uh, Reg the best as a dish best served cold, old Klingon proverb, right? <laughs> um, like he's a super geek, and he incorporates all these things into his films, and they're like I feel like it's Easter egg upon Easter egg upon Easter egg. Yeah, within and, his and films. Connor, this is why this is not to be a little bit not to toot our own horns too much, but this is why I love Super Fantastic Nerd Hour. You know, yes, we talk about Doctor Who and Star Trek, and we talk about comic books and all these things that are typically seen as being nerdy. But being a nerd and being a geek, all it really means is loving something, having a deep passion for it, and wanting to share your love and with other people and learn from other people. And I think if we think about that definition, Quentin Tarantino is such a huge nerd. And when mm-hmm. we look at films like Pulp Fiction, um, there there is so much in that film that sort of celebrates storytelling. You're right, just from the name. And it's not to sort of these pulp stories, these pulp magazines um, that were really known for their overly violent content and the, the, the dialogue and the weird sort of banter and all of that um, you it, it, there's a reason why Pulp Fiction is so often discussed in film classes is because it, there's so much there it's so meaty and it's referencing all of that that's actually where I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time believe it or not um, I saw Kill Bill before I saw Pulp Fiction so I knew Tarantino um, from his later films um, never saw Pulp Fiction. I was I was way too young to see this film <laughs> yeah, when it came out. Yeah, it may have been a little too. Uh, yeah, this. Uh, it would I would have been very confused, and I also I, I mean I I don't think it would have traumatized me. I just don't think I would have gotten it. Um, I, my brother used to take me to go see a lot of R-rated films when I was too young. Like he took me to see Terminator Two, which came out um, or a little bit before Pulp Fiction did. But um, I could follow that film. I mean, it was violent. Um, I could follow it and understand it. Uh, if I saw this film when I was that age or when it came out, I don't think I would have understood it. But I took a uh, film class uh, in undergrad, and uh, we watched it, the the class um, was awesome because it was in a film theater on campus and we went from uh the silent era films and we progressed in a linear fashion all the way to uh the godfather and then the last film we saw in that class was pulp fiction and it was a really cool experience because as you were saying um not only did i see recent films in a new light and i saw how they were influenced by pulp fiction but also just having seen so much cinema in that class pulp fiction was a great way to end that class because 
it, it was referencing a lot of these other things that we had previously seen and talked about. So that's how I got exposed to Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I, I mean, and, well, that's a slightly more, well... Um, my, is this my, a part of the show where you feel old? Is that what? Is a that what little happened? bit, a little bit, but <laughs> but it's okay. I'll get over it. I mean, I'm super happy that I got to see this in the theater. Um, and you know, I when I went to see it in the theater, as I said, I, I brought friends, and again, I feel badly that I don't remember who went to see this with me. Um, but I do remember in the theater, as the film continued on, hearing. Um, the people next to me and also other people in the theater who I think, I mean, you would have thought that it would have been Quentin Tarantino fans or people that had seen um, Reservoir Dogs um, just because it was totally packed and and maybe there was just some buzz and there were a lot of people like like my friends that had been dragged by people like me to go and see it. Again, it was like an art house type theater. It wasn't, you know, your mainstream theater. So maybe that was it. it's Boston, which is a total film. Yeah, maybe, maybe. City. But in any case, um, so we were watching the film. And as it progresses, I just keep hearing these like people saying different things in the theater being just very vocal or shocked and whatever. And there is like one, though, there are a few particular scenes where people just freak out. Um, and then a woman like threw up in the middle oh of the gosh. theater and oh yeah no it was like truly dramatic um the reaction to the film because it is it is pretty violent it is pretty gritty and, and some maybe, of it maybe we should pause right here and say obviously we're going to spoil the film and we're probably going to talk about some of the content that is violent and graphic and difficult. So yeah, this is not for, for kids. If, if any kids any watch reason, or listening yeah, to the show, yeah, we, we like to keep a clean show. We don't swear and things like that. But we need to talk about the graphic content of this right. of this film. Well, so, I don't know if we need to, but we're probably going to. We're probably going to. So with that, so go for it, Conrad. Sorry about it. Um. So so the scenes that people that people had the most reaction to were the um, adrenaline shot to the chest. Uh, scene, yeah, um, as well as the gimp scenes, and it's um, it's one of those things where you know um, my brother actually made a really interesting comment uh, watching Pulp Fiction. Is like I always am like, yeah, I really love Pulp Fiction. He was like, until I get to the scene where they bring out the gimp, and it's like I blocked out in my head that that scene was in there um, because it's you know the whole scene where where Bruce Willis. Um, the Bruce Willis character, um, who he he plays a character called Butch Coolidge, um, and he and uh, the character Marcellus Wallace, who's who's played by Ving Rhames, basically get, um, it, it, it they basically get taken prisoner down and are taken down to a basement and it's in a, a really, total random like they're chasing each other it goes no it, it's a total <laughs> shock and surprise that it goes in this direction and this is part of the success of the storytelling yeah um but you know it's that particular scene it causes a lot of people to just be very upset and i totally understand because what could be more terrifying well i thought you know you- I thought you were going to talk about uh, the scene where John Travolta's character shoots uh, Marvin in the face accidentally. Oh, that too. I mean, that's there too. And, and so, but, it, that's, you know, but that's it's like black humor. Like so, that's the thing yeah. is that the the whole way that the that I think Quentin Tarantino 
does extraordinarily well. The dialogue is super like sharp, super rock intense, solid. rock, rock solid. solid. Um, he kind of keeps you on your toes and confused because it is nonlinear. So you never know when all of these things are happening. And then once it happens, it happens pretty quickly. Like th- the cuts are pretty fast so that, you know, you're kind of being spun in many different directions, which at the end of the film makes you just sit there and think about it for days and days yeah. afterwards. And it doesn't leave you. It, it definitely makes you think about a lot of different things, but you're not quite sure why, because it's kind of like it's like you just got spun up into a washing machine. Well, it's, it's so interesting because uh, rewatching the film this week, um, one of the things I noticed was how um, the pacing of the film is a little bit different than than what we're used to. And oh, absolutely. It's changed a lot. It know? changed a lot. You know, there's a lot of data now about how um, over the last hundred years, films have become more and more quickly edited. And mm-hmm. we also know from some interesting uh, neuroscience research that the more well edited and faster paced a movie is, the more consistent experiences audiences have. Mm -hmm. So it it makes sense why people are, or filmmakers are really incentivized to edit a film tightly. The thing about something like like Pulp Fiction. Cult Fiction? A cult fiction is, I don't know, it's early Saturday morning, Conrad, I don't know what to tell you, and I didn't have my coffee yet. Um, The thing, well, a cult fiction makes sense because it's my... It's, it's a cult class. Anyways, um, the thing about this film is the camera, Tarantino sort of hangs the camera on characters while they're, you know, engaged in this awesome dialogue. And um, if the, the only thing that can keep you in that scene is the acting and the dialogue. And otherwise, there's not much going on. It's true. And Pulp Fiction has amazing dialogue. And I think the, the acting is just... It really just kind of grabs you. The thing that I was and that- but I would say the other thing that ties a like and he is he has shown again and again that he is a master of this is the soundtrack. Oh, that ties. So there's no score. It's no. all it's all songs. And it's um, and it's used very cleverly. I mean, it's oh, yeah. it's it's a very smart way. To, to use this as a tool. And, you know, it was funny, as I was, as I was watching this, I was immediately thinking of Guardians. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Because it's a similar thing. It's, it's like, um, you can't, and those songs kind of, like, stay with you. And yeah. that's, a, that's the other interesting thing about Tarantino is that, you know, he has these things that he obviously loved. They're obviously played a huge part, and it's why he's putting them in these films. Um and even to some of the stars that he uses in this film, like John Travolta. Um, so before we get to Travolta and the actors, I got to ask you a question sure. about something you said. So um, I was having a conversation with a friend of the show, Andrea Ledimenti, this week, and we were talking about trigger warnings. So, uh, you know, there's there's this culture now on the Internet um, with uh, certain articles, if, they, if these articles might be getting into content that is um, – out of the norm and more difficult for people to read. So, for example, um, articles that might be about something in mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we had a little bit of a warning before our mental health episode um, on this podcast and and things like that. And we kind of had this this interesting debate about when trigger warnings are necessary and when they're not. And I think for a lot of articles on the Internet, they're not necessarily necessary because most of the titles – Mm-hmm. kind of serve as a trigger warning themselves. But one area where I thought it, it, it might be helpful is is with films. Because the things with films, 
it, you don't know what you're going to see and you can't for the story to work. And on the other hand, uh, like the person you mentioned who threw up in the movie theater, maybe they were seeing something in that film that really was difficult well, for that the, person. The scene where that, that happened was um, the adrenaline shot scene. Yeah. yeah. So where Uma Thurman has an overdose. Yeah. And he has to basically throw a shot of adrenaline. And, you know, a lot of people do have very strong reactions to seeing needles you, and things you can like have, that. Yeah, you can um, have a vasovagal reaction. You can you can pass out seeing things like yeah, that. Yeah, so and, I, and I think that and, was, and, and, and it was like, it's totally, and, but I mean, this poor woman that threw up, <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> but, one of my friends, by the way, it was, it was somebody like much further in the front. And um, in Tarantino's, in his defense, he doesn't actually, he doesn't, show the no, last moment it's more it it's away it's actually just the thought of it yes. i think that it's yes. such a powerful visual that i think it just caused this huge this very strong reaction but what um, do you think and, about this like should and should, i i don't know i think i i think if you were that bothered by certain things you you should do your research i think that there are yeah. enough spoilers and things online that you don't need to give trigger warnings to films yeah um and you know i i I kind of feel like there's there's only so much that you can do. Although I do think Up should perhaps have a trigger warning for crying at the beginning or something like that. Um, <laughs> well, I, but I, anyway, I think no, I think I, you're right. You got to do your research. If, if, you're if, someone... if you are somebody that's sensitive about certain things, um, then I think you, you need to do research reviews. before you go to it. And I don't. It, and I don't, and I think that there's enough information out there. And I yeah. think that's part of why there are so many reviews and spoilers and things ahead of time for that purpose. So I think that those yep. all serve as trigger warnings. Yep. But anyway. So you're going to mention Travolta. Well, what I was going to say is that the other thing that this film, you know, in addition to bringing all of his geeky love of of, of pulp movies and and music and all of that kind of thing he tarantino brings back travolta i mean he really did this is the film that absolutely brought john travolta back into filmmaking um or at least back Definitely. into the public I mean, eye he i mean he he was he was huge um grease and uh was it saturday night fever was his other but then he disappeared um, and then he disappeared and didn't really do much for a while um this film is a film that really brought him back. And then you see his, if you look him up on IMDb, he is huge in the 90s. And it, it really is because of Pulp Fiction. Right. And I mean, it's interesting how this ended up happening. I mean, I think Tarantino wanted Travolta. But prior to that, I mean, he had wanted to cast uh, Michael Madsen, who's one of his favorites. Um, he uh, he had been in Reservoir Dogs. Um, and he's appeared, obviously, in Kill Bill and other things. Um but he was uh, he, he had other film um he he had already agreed to be in White Herb with Kevin Costner. <laughs> Can you imagine? White Herb. Uh, I forgot about yeah, that film. Yeah, no, so that's like what you end up being in and then you see what happens with Pulp Fiction. I think um, White Herb is in the same category as Waterworld for me. Oh gosh, yeah. And what um, was the other Kevin Costner sci-fi film about like the this dystopian future? Oh, uh, I don't I don't even know. Oh, um, all those films are grouped in the same category yeah. in, the, in the way back of my hippocampus. Um but anyway, so so he was in that. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson was in it, although he was already, you know, um I think pretty well known at that time at least. Um in in some smaller roles, um, Uma Thurman, 
Um, she had she had kind of done um, the postman Conrad yeah. just popped in my no no well, she didn't do no, that no, but that was a Kevin Costner one but, no, she, but Uma Thurman had done a few things but she point. wasn't like gritty I guess or this made her kind of cool in some way um, and yeah, then absolutely. and then Bruce Willis had I mean obviously famous but all of his movies were kind of flops um, up until this point and this made him like he dominated this. It's yeah. amazing. And then you had all these other crazy other characters that were just obviously fantastic, like Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth. Um, um, Christopher Walken has like this little cameo. Oh, he's got a great, in the uh, the watch scene, the backstory to the watch, he has that great moment uh, mm-hmm. where he's coming in and, and it's revealed that this is uh, Bruce Willis's character as a child. Um, um, and if you look at was- the, so if you look at the, <laughs> uh, Vin, Vin Rames, obviously he's like a huge part of this. Um, but if you look at... Um, if you look at this this cast and just see the things that they did after this, like they were no, but they they were well known people. But after this, they were you know, you you just saw them in so many things. Um, after this, they kept getting cast and and some really interesting and and kind of just amazing roles. Um, so it was really um, for them. It was just a um, I don't want to. Uh, it was. I would say it was a, a highlight on a lot of resumes at that point. Yeah, and what's interesting about this film is, well, there's a lot of things that's interesting about it, but one of the things that happened is Tarantino didn't have a huge budget for this film, so he basically asked everyone to take a pay cut. So um, all the actors were paid, I think, like a, uh, like $20,000 per week or it's some amount like that. And they all week. had negotiated different things. I mean, I know that Bruce Willis specifically had to really... Uh, take down his normal amount, yeah, but, and, agreed and they, to, but agreed to do that. And I think and people, they all got paid based on the number of weeks that they mm-hmm. were filming the the film. And some characters mm-hmm. are in the film for longer, but they also had a certain percentage of the revenue that the film was going to make. So it it was this a little bit different business model. But they they still they didn't make it as much money as they could on on a larger budget film. However, I think you're right. The, the great benefit to being in this film, it is, is so well regarded as one of the best films of the 1990s, especially the early 90s. And just, yeah, look at their IMDb. After Pulp Fiction, these people are in a lot of different films. And I think it's and because... And it's not of, just different films. It's, like, really interesting. Like Yeah. And then, obviously, Uma Thurman, you know, when she went on to do uh, Kill Bill, she clearly loves working with Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, um, yep. and he loves working with her. Um, and just sort of the things that he ends up casting women in. Um, just speaking of, of films that have like strong female leads, um, it's always interesting to see his representation um, in these in his films. Um, so, and so I think that's one of the big legacies of this film is absolutely what it did for the cast. And I think what the, one of the other things it's a legacy here. Um, I was in my review for or my prep for this episode. I um, came across Siskel and Ebert's um, kind of look at Pulp Fiction, and one of the things that they say um, they're comparing it to Hitchcock's Psycho, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, mm-hmm. uh, A Clockwork Orange, and they say each film shook up a tired, bloated movie industry and used a world of lively lowlifes to reflect how dull other movies had become. And that I predict will be the ultimate honor for Pulp Fiction, like these great films. It criticizes other movies. And I think that's one of the other things that it did here. It, it, it shook up 
the film industry a little bit. And it, like you're saying, you saw this in an art house theater. And um, it, I think it made it okay to have these more n- complex narratives and have them in a mainstream format. It, in a mainstream format, I mean something that mainstream audiences could enjoy. It, it, you didn't just have to be a film student to get this film. But uh, I think it also highlighted some of the things that film students or film like dorks would really love, you know, so it's sort of like, this is what we've been talking about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when your favorite indie band goes mainstream right. and then everyone likes it. And like, you know, you hate that because it's like, well, I was into, you know, this band, I was into Decemberist before they got big. And then uh, everyone loves it. But there's also a little bit of, well, now you guys get it. Now you guys know what we've been missing. Right. Um, so I think that was totally one of the things that happened with Pulp Fiction. It was sort of the, the gateway drug to a lot of more a, a nerdier level of cinema. Well, and I, and I also think that one of the things that it did well is that there, there are obviously clearly a lot of really intense, heavy and gritty scenes. But there's also an enormous amount of black humor within it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you like there is that sort of off-putting thing that it does that you know you're totally horrified by what's going on but you're also laughing. Yeah. Um, Do you have any favorites? Every any favorite scenes related to that? Well, I mean there is the one where they accidentally blow the kids head off like, not not that specifically but there's like a moment after that where they realize what happens and then they have to obviously get the the wolf in to clean up everything. Yeah. Um so there's that. Um, there's, I mean, there really is. Um, that that is probably like one of the one of the more. And then the the aftermath of that with the wolf when he's basically taking care of business. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like you're you're kind of like even how he's dis- discussing um, basically cleaning up the mess that they have made with the body and the car and everything like that. Well, in Quentin Tarantino's character, how he says, like, well, um, we got these linens from my right, aunt and right. uncle, and, and they're they're not with us anymore, and th- these right, linens right. are just very special to us. Right, and- right. There's, like, this whole thing, and you, you're there's this horrifying thing going on, and just the discussion is very mundane and weird, and the weird things that happen when people are in, like, stressful situations, that it's just an interesting, very interesting scene. So, I mean... I gotta say, my my favorite is probably the the final diner scene. Um, that, is prob- just, that is probably good, but well, know. it's not just because that's uh, bringing these different stories together. Um, but I just love Samuel L. Jackson in mm. that role and how uh, how sort of awesomely like hardcore he is uh, he's like get my wallet out of the bag and he's like which wallet is that and he goes you know the yeah i won't say it here but he it's those words because we're mm-hmm. a clean podcast and it's just uh just the level of awesomeness and apparently that was quinn tarantino's actual wallet like that is the wallet that doesn't surprise me at all <laughs> right now there's also um there's a lot of speaking of that scene. There's the massive discussion about the MacGuffin in this film. Um, MacGuffin, obviously referring to, you know, the thing that sets the plot in motion, but doesn't really matter. And nobody uh, ever knows what it is. And nobody ever knows what it <laughs> is. It's, it's like Maltese awesome. Falcon. You know, so the briefcase here, um, we know that there's something incredibly valuable in it. And there's been a lot of discussion on the internet and pre-internet about what 
uh, is in that briefcase. Some people think it's money. Some people think it's jewels. Some people think it's uh, uh, that character's soul. What's his name's uh, soul? Um, I'm blanking on his name. Um, but Tarantino has, he sort of, I think he had an interview on Howard Stern where he said, um, the briefcase is whatever you want it to be. And I purpose, like inside was just a flashlight <laughs> or a light bulb, I think, a light bulb with a couple of batteries. But he wanted to keep it vague and he wanted the the um, audience to sort of project whatever they thought should be in there to be in there. And I think that's cool. Um, it, it's, again, goes back to Maltese Falcon it goes back to a lot of different movies but um it's it's really cool when films like this inspire people to have debates and discussion and I think that's another thing that makes Pulp Fiction such a nerdy film yeah um uh, the other I want to chat again sorry about the the music just a little bit yeah um, let's go back to the music um in it you know in, in the same way that he brought back um he brought back some of these actors uh, like John Travolta and whatever. Um, the music, very similar to Guardian, what's happening with Guardians now, a lot of the music used in the film, you know, suddenly was on the billboard <laughs> again, like um, in terms of popularity. Yeah. The, the song I'm specifically thinking of, of is Son of a Preacher Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, by Dusty oh, Springfield. Um, and then there's also uh, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, Neil Diamond. Yeah. Um, and you would hear these all around. Um, you know, yep. you, you probably don't remember this, but you would also say... No, no, we- well, I, I remember... Uh, <laughs> I remember there being a lot of covers of these songs because they were that they were popular again, and they were sort of in the zeitgeist. And I remember, I just remember hearing these songs a lot, even though I hadn't seen Pulp Fiction. I remember them being there at that well, time. Well, and the fact you know he used Dick Dale very famously, Dick Dale's um, Mister Lou as the opening um, credits and, and yep. going into it. Dick Dale, amazing, like surfer music, like yep. y'all, you knew it's it's iconic, but it was an not, eclectic mix, of but music. not very well known. Like yeah. it's it's an interesting thing, you know, the fact that all this stuff just suddenly is um, it just became so mainstream after this, um, just really um, really incredible the way this all came. It came around. Um, it must have been extraordinarily gratifying for Quentin Tarantino <laughs> to to see how much love there was for this. And I mean, I think he knew because this this was uh, screened at the Cannes Film Festival in uh, in ninety four, and people were just blown away by it. Um, and I don't know if you saw, but they actually there was sort of a a tribute to Pulp Fiction um, this past year at Cannes. Oh no! Uh, no yeah, and there was like it was kind of cool because you saw. Uh, there's a lot of photos of Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman walking around uh, with John Travolta. Like, they all, like, went to it and, and you know, so it's kind of, um, it, it's nice to see that it's still, it still has, like, a spot and people still acknowledge that, how interesting and, and amazing it was at the time. Yeah, and, I mean, it it's not, like you were saying before, I think, you know, 20 years later, here we are, we're talking about Pulp Fiction still. And I think, you know, there there were... Uh, non-linear stories before and Annie Hall is a very good example of that and it's uh, Annie Hall is a good st- example of a story that that used it for something other than just 
a uh, cliche, narrative right. cliche. Right. Uh, the thing about Pulp Fiction, I think that's interesting, is Tarantino said, um, you know, I got the idea of doing something that novelists get a chance to do, but filmmakers don't. Telling three different stories, having mm-hmm. characters float in and out with different weights depending on the story. And that is something that's really was unique about this film. And I think that is something that um, is probably going to carry forward into our top five a bit is and our crossover is there were there were these separate stories that when put together tell uh, a larger story and there's characters that come in and out and it's really interesting how that happens you can watch this in a linear way um, there's YouTube videos where they take major scenes and cut them into a linear format but it's not successful it's not successful it's not as interesting no. uh, that's not what the story is about the story's not about the larger story the story's about these separate three well it's about characters. what you know about these what it's about what you're finding out about these characters as the film yeah. progresses yeah and it's interesting because you're finding things out about them that may not necessarily be in the present of the story <laughs> so and, and that's i think the great one of the great legacies about this film um not too many people were able to to succeed at doing that on the, on the big screen. We see that in TV shows. We see that in novels and short stories. But this was kind of the first time we saw this on the big screen, and it was really cool. And, you know, I think 20 years later, um, it's interesting because many of these actors are still big. They're still around. Um, Samuel L. Jackson, I think, definitely is probably one of the biggest stars now um, mm-hmm. out of this collection of folks. But Bruce Willis is still making movies. Uh, how good they are, that's debatable. Well, yeah. uh, and Uma Thurman is still huge. Uh, um, you know who's not really that big anymore? Who? Um, our, our, our good friend who was relaunched in this film, uh, John Travolta. He's uh. not really doing too much anymore. Yeah, he's, he hasn't been doing that much lately, but maybe yeah. he'll come back he's, again. Maybe he's we'll flying see his planes. Yeah, he's flying his planes. Yeah, but um, Tarantino is is still hot, still making a ton of films. They're still doing well. Um, you know, it's it's twenty years later. These folks who are involved in the production are are still uh, still around, still uh, doing good stuff. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so, are you uh, are you ready to to enter? Well, I was actually going to say before we we enter to our crossover chamber, I was also going to talk about um, the influence that this film has had on other filmmakers. Um, mm. And one of those filmmakers is most certainly Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. Um, although he obviously, in his own right, had um, you know mariachi and and a lot of other films, but he and and Quentin Tarantino have. Um, definitely collaborated on quite a few projects um he is known definitely uh, probably i mean the mexico trilogy is is one of his best known pieces of work um have you seen that trilogy yeah once upon a time in mexico was that the first well, el mariachi was the first one el mariachi yeah yeah um which was you know very um um you know, very low budget, but it, absolutely, like the trilogy is great. But it's and Desperado was the second. Yeah, so it's yeah. like you watch it. You watch yeah. it as a when you watch it as a trilogy, you see how much more money he got with each film, most definitely. <laughs> um, and El Mariachi was ninety ninety two, so that definitely. But but he and Quentin Tarantino are clearly uh, people that that like to work together. So um, 
Well, I mean, they had Grindhouse and Planet Terror yep. that they sort of collaborated on, and they were kind of released as a uh, as like a matinee kind of thing, where you see both films back to back. Right, um, and then they. Um, I feel like did they? It felt like they had something else that they worked on together. I think they just really like working together. Maybe, and I, well, I mean, I know that they've produced different things too. Um, but, um, in any case, when I was watching, um, the movie that we're going to throw into the crossover changer, the chamber, Sin City, I was actually, while I was watching it, I was like, this feels very Pulp Fiction to me, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way the story was told. Um, mm-hmm. but so, so are you ready then to enter? Uh, let's get into the infinite crossover chamber. Um... You- you have no noise for it, do you? I have no noise today. I thought you were going to no. do a little surfer noise. Dun, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. No? Uh, th- that would have been good. Um, I guess it's too late for that now. That's okay. That's okay. Well, first- unless, unless you do a nonlinear thing. Okay. All right. Nice. Um, <laughs> that was kind of a if they crossover. That was set. almost like a neener yeah. neener intro, yeah. but okay. No, it, it wasn't. It that didn't really work. Um, all right. In the infinite crossover chamber today, um, we are taking Pulp Fiction, one of the greatest nonlinear stories uh, or films of our time, and mashing it up against Sin City, Robert Rodriguez's wonderful. Uh, adaptation of a graphic novel by Frank Miller. This was uh, 2005, I believe, Conrad? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, 2005's uh, Sin City, uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez, and also director of credit to Frank Miller. So, well, what- yeah, that, that's actually a very interesting thing, though. You know about that, right? Oh, yeah. No, so, and- you know, so basically when Robert Rodriguez was making this film, he wanted Frank Miller to have the co-directing credit. He wanted him to have credit because he said, basically, yes, there is a lot of my vision in this, but my vision would be nothing without his initial vision or his original vision and without him consulting on this. Um, but because uh, Frank Miller was not part of the Screen Actors Guild, they said... They basically refused this, um, so Robert Rodriguez uh, resigned from the Screen Actors Guild. Yep. Um, in order to basically give him credit, and then, you know, there was actually a few films after that. I think he wasn't able to be a part of because of that. Um, but in any case, what's our question to the, today, Connor? Our question is: um, We're pitting Sin City against uh, Pulp Fiction, or vice versa, and which film? uses the non-linear storyline more effectively to tell their story. So so this was a really great idea. So while I might have come up with the idea for today's show, this crossover, this was your idea. And once you said, hey, what about Sin City? I was like, oh, my gosh. Right. That is the perfect matchup because not only do you have these two directors who like working with each other, who have influenced each other in Quintarantino and Robert Rodriguez, but you also have these two films that, you know, I think – Pulp Fiction, and I know our crossover is really about the nonlinear format, but we talked a lot about the legacy of Pulp Fiction. The legacy of Sin City, oh man, this was the first film that um, adapted a graphic novel in such an authentic way to the source material mm-hmm. and also had that very stylized format that we saw imitated and uh, 
and influ- influence many, many films to come, whether it's 300, Watchmen, um, a whole slew of other films. Uh, many of them were based on the innovative style that Sin City had in 2005. And we, we both didn't see, or well, at least we didn't review the sequel for our show um, because the sequel kind of came really rehashed late. A, and, and, and also rehashed yeah. a lot of the things that we saw in the first film. So, And it's not as innovative now because we've seen it done so much, but at its time when it came out, Sin City was uh, very innovative in, um, in what it was doing on film. Right. Um, so, Yeah, and um, you know, I was also going to point out that both films have Bruce Willis in them. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. I didn't even, I didn't even realize that. Um, so, and, and they both have, um, they're very graphic. Mm -hmm. They're, they're both very violent. I think Sin City goes into much more of a stylized and, and, uh, it shows more of the graphic violence than Pulp Fiction does. And I, and I think it's a little harder to watch for that reason. It's absolutely harder to watch. And it's also, most of the violence is targeted against women. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, this is in the source material, but I'm also at times it's uncomfortable how how much you're you're like, well, okay, are they are they saying something here, or are they pretending to say something and also being very graphic? You know, right. you know, like I kind of go back and forth about that. Um, whereas we mentioned before about Pulp Fiction, a, a lot of the graphic violence is sort of uh, nodded to, uh, and it's not directly shown but that's also one of the differences between i think the 90s and the 2000s and, well, and what we're seeing on cinema true so, and I, you know and i will say that just because of some of the themes from the graphic novels uh, the sin city graphic novels um i don't think you would have seen aside from the ability to show this in the way that this film was made um because it is absolutely beautiful um just for that reason alone i think it's worth watching yeah. um but I don't think you would have seen this film made in the nineties. No, I don't think it. Uh, you know, I, I think you need. Sense. I think you need Pulp Fiction starting out, or or some other films like paving the way for this to even make it uh, well, to the screen. Because some of the themes and and some of the, I mean, and that's the other thing that's interesting sometimes about graphic novels is that you can show certain things in illustration. Um, you know, in in you know that format. And people don't get as as worked up about it uh, yep. as they would in a film. So, yep. well, so getting to the the nonlinear element here. Um, it, so one of the things that uh, that Sin City does that is very similar to Pulp Fiction is it does have these um, very specific stories. Right. It and, does, and it, it, it's showing different stories and different cuts of those stories, but they're not necessarily in chronological order. No, they're not. And I think a, a good example of that is uh, the the cannibal character right. uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> played by a very creepy Elijah uh, Wood. Elijah Wood. He is and, like the creepiest freaking character. He really is. It, it's, it's the most creepy you will ever see. Um, Elijah Wood. Uh, Absolutely. Um, and by the way, so that particular character um, is is called Kevin. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen Cabin in the Woods? 
Uh, yeah, I have. So it's a great movie. if if you have seen Cabin in the Woods, there's this point where the characters are, um, you know, the characters that are running the the horror freak show, um, yeah. whatever, have the whiteboard with all the names of the different horrors written upon it. Yeah, and one of the names on there is Kevin. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and <laughs> it's implied, although nobody will admit to it, that that is what it's supposed to be this character from Sin City, or people believe that that's what it's supposed to be. <laughs> so, oh, that's perfect. That's so, perfect. And you know what? I think I think this character kind of belongs on there because he was terrifying. He was terrifying. And, and so what happens in this, um, in Sin City, is you have these concrete stories. Um, characters live and die, and then maybe there's another story that's told and that character is brought back because it's it's being told in this nonlinear way. So very much like Pulp Fiction, it's a collection of short stories that uh, do influence each other to some degree. And so in that respect, these films are perfectly set up right. for this crossover challenge. Sometimes, Conrad, you and I, we kind of need to bend the laws of physics. We need to kind of stretch out the space-time continuum a little bit. We need to fudge things around for a mashup in this crossover chamber. This one, the settings of the I chamber I don't know what you're talking about. We never, we never do that. What are you talking about? Well, you, <laughs> our, our listeners might not notice because the rules of physics are just kind of thrown out the window in the crossover mm-hmm. chamber today's session i'm looking at our controls for the chamber they're set very low mm-hmm. this is a very natural crossover we we haven't had to bend things too much today no um it's an interesting the, the question's interesting though um you know i think both both directors and both films use this this nonlinear storytelling to reveal different things about the characters and different parts of the stories. I feel, and and at the end, you get some kind of. I feel like Sin City wraps the stories up in a neater bow than mm-hmm. than Pulp Fiction does. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I would say. In terms of in terms of like the different ways, I feel like Sin City is more revealing different things about the story and the plot line, and Pulp Fiction is really really revealing more about the the characters. So that may be the biggest difference. Yeah, I think you're right. So we we know more about um, by the end of Pulp Fiction, we know more about the principal characters. Um, and the why of- they're doing certain things, and you know that's that's more of the that's to me seems more of why the plot's being driven. Like you hear different things about, um, you know, um, about the fact that Butch, um, the Butch character, yeah, um, is is on the run because, and you know, and the, you hear all this discussion between um, Vince Vega and and yep. about the fact that it's because Butch uh, gave. Uh, the wife's feet massage, a massage, or things like <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so there's all these little things that are dropping in there, and you're seeing what. So you're you're thinking you know certain things about why characters are motivated to, to do things. I feel like in Sin City, you're definitely given much more. It's a little bit of a murder mystery. There's like a mystery involved, and there's yeah, there's a lot of um, tension, and mo- it, it feels like the storyline is telling you different things so that the mysteries can eventually be solved. Um, and yeah, I don't I think feel, and, and there are mysteries in Pulp Fiction as well, but I don't feel like they are ever really fully solved. No, and they're, they're not really big deals. Like, so one of the things that I was wondering about with Pulp Fiction when I first saw it was uh, Vincent Vega. Uh, 
he's wearing this UC Santa Cruz like banana sludge yeah, t-shirt, yeah. which um, you know I grew up in Bay Area where I saw you know a lot of people wearing those t-shirts who went to UC Santa Cruz, and it's kind of known as like the hippy dippy place to go where. Back in the 60s, they didn't really give any grades. It was kind of like a very uh, – you, you, you go out to UC Santa Cruz and you smoke pot in the woods was kind of the idea. So to see that T-shirt on Vega was hilarious. And there's kind of like, well, you know, why is he wearing that T-shirt? Well, what's the deal with this briefcase um, and all that? But those, that's not why you're watching the film. You're watching the film because of the dialogue, the characters, the interactions – you are watching Sin City to try to understand this larger storyline. And I think it kind of comes down to Mickey Rourke's character um, and uh, sort of how, how these different stories are, are interacting with each other. Um, so is there one – looking at those two goals and that part, you know, we're going to have to do, turn up the chamber to be able to compare mm-hmm. larger plot versus individual characters. Um, but does – I, is there one film that achieves that goal better? Achieves their own individual goal better? I I feel like in some ways it has to be Sin City. Um, mm. I also should point out Quentin Tarantino also has uh, director credit for for one of the one of the segments of this film or for the 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 pit scene. Yeah, where yeah. driving that. So we should I also mention forgot, that because he was involved that he's in this. The special guest director. Yeah, of that he was. A, there, he, there was a special guest director. Um, just so, so we Conrad, that's that. probably what you were thinking of a few minutes ago, where you're like, "Oh, there's one more thing they collaborated on." Yes, yes and that's what film. I. Well, <laughs> yeah. no, they've done. I mean, they're totally involved in a lot of different things, and they produce different things. So it's always yeah. But so yes, yeah, so this would be it. Um, but you know, I feel like in terms of how the story progresses, how it um, is presented to the audience. Um, to me, Sin City, and, and I mean, in some ways you have to, like in terms of turning the controls up with the crossover cha- chamber, um, Pulp Fiction is in some ways meant to be disjointed and jarring. So, yeah, you know, so, but, so this is actually a pretty tough comparison. But I don't think it is at the end. I, I, mm. I think you watch Pulp Fiction... And yes, obviously, you watch it, and at the end, th- there's some things that live on in your head in, in, a, in a bad way, and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I just watch? <laughs> um, but I don't think you're, especially if you've seen it a few times, you're not really left wondering about the larger plot. And I don't think that's the case either with Sin City. Mm. Um, here's, here's the thing about Sin City. Um, there is variable acting ability uh, That's true. Film. You're right, you're now, right. Now, uh, but, listeners, but we're not talking about that. We're talking no, about the nonlinear storytelling. We're not. We're not. But that is something that plays a role here. And listeners of the show know I am a sometimes a a defender of uh, of the pretty women. Um, but in this this episode, I'm going to have to say Jessica Alba is really doesn't really do a pretty good job in this film. I think she her. Uh, that that character wasn't as interesting to me, and um, that character does play a central role in this film, in the larger plot, mm-hmm. in the larger narrative. So I think there there are certain things in this film that take me out of it a little bit, and um, that's kind of the thing about Elijah Wood is um, he's clearly like you know Elijah Wood, Bruce Willis. Yeah, um, you it, know, even honestly, like, but you know, it's it's tough because it is. I mean, Sin City is kind of pulpy, 
So it is so funny, it's, but it's hard for me to disconnect the actors from the characters. And usually when that happens, um, that like, for example, that happens a lot in Tom Cruise films. Mm. Um, because you're looking and it's like, it's Tom Cruise and here's a Tom Cruise film. But there are certain times where I am able to lose myself in his portrayal. I think that happened in Edge of Tomorrow this year. It also happened in uh, Minority Report. Here, I, I was always reminded that I'm looking at Jessica Alba or I'm looking at Bruce Willis or I'm looking at... There's a few characters I think it was different, like Rosario Dawson, I think, does a great uh, oh, job. Benicio Del Toro Benicio Del Toro is great. Um, but with Elijah Wood, I'm like, oh, I'm looking at a le- evil Elijah Wood. <laughs> and I mention this because, um, you know, our question is about using the nonlinear format to tell the story. It was hard for me to completely be glued into the story because I was getting lost in these other details, mm-hmm. things that weren't a part of the narrative. You know, that wasn't a part of the narrative structure or format, whereas that was never the issue with with Pulp Fiction. Even when I'm watching it again, I'm like, oh, there's Uma Thurman. I love her and in, in, uh, Gattaca and this and that. But I can get lost in the I can get lost into the structure, into the narrative. Um, so if I had to pick, I would pick Pulp Fiction because it is easier for me to get lost in the nonlinear format and therefore be able to enjoy the story. See, I have a slightly different take on it just because uh, I feel like the way that they presented Sin City was so true to, you know, the 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 Sin City storytelling style. Um I also feel like some of the acting and some of the things that you were picking up on were deliberate within the storytelling. Really? Yeah, well, because it's supposed to be pulpy. It's supposed to be silly. You're supposed to, I mean, it's somewhat unfortunate, but some of the, you know, the Jessica Alba character um, and um, the character that Brittany Murphy plays, um, you know, they're they're supposed to be basically a, a stereotype. Um, they are, you know, kind of like these, these, like strange female characters that are within this 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 world um and i just feel like the way that the scenes were cut the way the story was cut were very true to that style of storytelling um Mm. so i'm gonna actually have to go with with sin city on this one um and and they're you know it's tough it's close it's close um i i think overall as a film i enjoy pulp fiction more um and i think that it left me just in terms of following the film, just keeping to thinking about it and thinking about those types of things. But Sin City, I feel, wrapped up the story in a neater way. Um, well, one thing I will agree with you is it is close. I, I think when it comes to the nonlinear story format, these two movies would be in, if I was doing a top five where they're eligible, um, they would be it would be close between one and two. I think one would probably go Pulp Fiction and two would go Sin City. So I definitely agree with you there. Um, I, I think we have, I, I had to look at these other elements to be able to make that comparison because they're just so close when it comes to using their format to tell their story. Um, well, listeners, let us know what you think. What story better uses the nonlinear format? Is it Pulp Fiction, the clear winner by... Alima 2 Standards, or Sin City, Conrad's choice this week. Let us know. Um, yes.
Definitely. I want to I want to hear this. So with that, why don't we swing dance our way into the uh, top five? Excellent. Um, so the top five today, we are talking about our top five nonlinear films. Which, so, uh, you know, what was interesting about doing this top five is huh? um, just in, in coming up with these um, and, you know, obviously a few of these are in honorable mentions, realizing how many have already appeared in our top five, which, yeah. I, uh, which I'm now not using here. Obviously, exactly. Kill, Kill Bill here. would clearly be at the top of my list. Um, yeah. Eternal Watchmen, Sunshine. Eternal it's... Sunshine. Um, so I, I'm going to say, you know, obviously those are not going to appear here. Yeah. Um, and we've totally. talked a little bit about Reservoir Dogs, so I'm not going to put that in here as well. So yeah, um, I'm I'm putting uh, Pan's Labyrinth off. Um, oh, I was I, that was list. that was initially on my list, and then I was like, you know, we've talked so much about it, so that's yep. you know. So in any case, those things clearly yep. they belong on these lists, but I wanted to add in some some new stuff. S- so please don't hate us, listeners. Um, there's no. usually always someone who's like, you, attention, please. You left off Kill Bill off this list. Yes. No, um, it's not. No, Clearly it no, is. But we we're, yeah. we just want to talk about some other ones that maybe. Yeah, let's talk have. about new stuff. I like talking about new stuff. So with that, Conrad, how, um, did you, was there anything you were looking for in, in picking um, your top five? Well, it was a little bit just what we were talking about in the crossover chamber. It's basically films that are using a nonlinear storytelling style or format. Um, and I used it a little bit loosely here um, to to tell the story. And generally I picked films, and, and there are a couple of films on here that may not necessarily be, um, there were certain, they may not have been quite as successful as, say, uh, Pulp Fiction or Sin City in the way that they told the film, but they definitely kept me thinking about them after yeah. I watched the film. So uh, I th- tried to, to put a lot of thought into that piece. Of yeah, when that- to, and, and, you know, and I will also mention that I think almost, I want, I think almost all of these films I have seen at least twice or possibly even three times because of that, because they kept yes. me thinking and because I just kept, oh, you know what? I really want to go back and rewatch that because I'm still thinking about this. So, you know, I didn't notice that. Um, I didn't, Notice that as a criteria, uh, but you're right. The the films that I all chose, uh, I've seen these films multiple times because of that very nature of them. I, I was looking at films that kept me puzzled while I was watching them, and they came together in some way at the end. Um, and they were using the nonlinear story format in a way beyond it just being a cliche. Um, so yeah, awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Um, do you want to get things started with your number five? Sure. Um, my number five was Jacob's Ladder. Um, and have you ever seen this? Yeah, but I don't remember it too. <laughs> well, it's super disturbing, or at least it was when I first <laughs> watched it. Um, it came out in 1990. I did not see it then. I, I know I saw it later, I think, in college. Um, and it uh, it was um, a film... That um, was directed by Adrian Lyne. Um, it starred Tim Robbins, um, who is the main person, but also Elizabeth Pena and uh, Danny Aiello. Um, it, um, they, they also reissued it um, in 2010 on Blu-ray. Um, but it follows the main character, Jacob, and he's a Vietnam veteran. And basically, I'm not going to give too much away, but there is... He, you think generally that he is a Vietnam veteran, veteran um, suffering from PTSD. Um, he has like different flashbacks, and 
um, they keep getting more and more fragmented and the way that this, and you keep having these different storylines going on throughout the, the story. Um, and they get more and more bizarre and basically there's a pretty big twist at the end and people still don't know exactly what the actual ending is. There's a lot of guesses about it. Um, but it was one of those films where I watched it and at the end of it, I was really just not, I wouldn't say traumatized, but kind of like, what did I just watch? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, it's it's one of those films. I don't know that the linear storytelling was quite as successful because it, fra- it, is, it is very fragmented and it is very trippy, so to speak. Um, but it, it's something that, it was one of those films that just kept me thinking. So I did watch it a couple of times. Um, and it also had a lot of influences on some other films that have come out later and it later. Um, one of the things that I did not put on this list was Sixth Sense in terms of nonlinear yeah. storytelling. And also Bruce Willis, man, a lot of yeah, I know he story. he loves the nonlinear Looper, all sorts of stuff, right? Oh yes, Looper! Um, oh my gosh, I didn't put that on as well because we had talked about that so extensively. In no, episode. I didn't either. And I'm um, yeah, but I love but, that film. Um, but Silent Hill is another influence that this film had. So. In any case, um, it kept me thinking. I did watch this a couple of times, and it was, you know what, it was still disturbing <laughs> after in the rewatch. So it, it it's an interesting film. So that that was my number five. Uh, good pick, Conrad. Um, so my number five pick is Into the Woods. Have you seen this film? I haven't. Um, but I know other people that really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I think you, I, I think you might like this one. So uh, I find I know what it's based upon, and I, I find it a very upsetting idea. Um, well, so okay, so, so maybe you won't. So but, that's why I have I have actually deliberately avoided it. But go it, ahead. It is um, well. I guess you were you were being an informed consumer and uh, doing your own yep. kind of research. Kind of getting back to the whole trigger warning discussion we had earlier. Uh, this is a 2007 film written and directed by Sean Penn. Uh, it is based on a book of the same name, and it's really about the story of uh, Christopher McCandles or McCandless, and it, it's about this individual and the time that he spent in Alaska, kind of living on his own um, in the wild. And the story cuts between um, him being in Alaska and his life before that. Um, it, it's a really beautifully shot film. And as opposed to some of these other films that are more typically nerdy, I think in some ways, uh, some of the ones on my top five, this one is um, a little bit more mainstream and it, it's telling um, a little bit more of a, a simpler story. Um, and I just, I really thought this film was, was beautiful and it, it, is, um, it is a bit tragic and I can see why it would be upsetting for some people to to watch but i just um well did you know the story of of christopher mccandless before this i did not because part no. of what upsets me about this is that you know he basically I, I mean and i am gonna spoil this so people who haven't seen it or don't want to and this is part of why i don't really want to watch it um he you know he basically went into the wilderness but he didn't really have food and equipment he yeah. just thought he was going to live in solitude and meditate. I don't really know. Um, and they, I mean, when he was found, he had basically starved to death. He was yeah. like 66 pounds. Um, he brought, I mean, it. it's um, part of, the, part of the, the reason why I have a hard time even 
dealing with this story is that there's still a part of me when I hear this story wanting to save him or wishing that somebody mm. had saved him. And, you know, to me, I think, and and I don't know what your feeling is on this as a, as a psychologist, Ali, but I feel like maybe there was some mental illness involved here. Um, maybe, I don't know um, oh, for sure, but I just feel like to go out and to do this um, and, you know, some people would say that it was a spiritual thing that he did. Um, and it just seems like a really upsetting and tragic horror to me. Um, so, and, you know, I, I think people tried to deter him from doing this, not successfully. Um, and he refused all assistance. And in some ways, you know, I know there's been a bunch of articles that came out that said, you know, maybe the reason why he died was that he had eaten some, um, some type of shrubbery or whatever that made him ill and, you know, that that may have been the true cause of his death. But in any, any which way you cut it, the idea that this person went out there and, and you know, he was out there all alone dying just is is awful to me. <laughs> so it, it, it's it is tough to watch. And I, I think you're right. Um, it, it is tragic in that way. Um, it reminds me of another film that I think is, is difficult to watch called Grizzly Man, which is um, it's a documentary and biography about a, a similar kind of story about a man who goes out to live in the wilderness um, and uh, go to live with grizzly bears. Um, it, so I get I think people who are very who have a lot of empathy um, for for whom empathy comes very easily, and I think you're one of those people. I think you do feel these things very strongly. I think it it is a tough one to watch, um, I, and I think the the counterpoint to that is um, it is a story about um, survival and about. Um, I think a lot of people have this – there is this appeal to getting away from cities, getting away from all of this and getting back to just living in nature. Um, there is an appeal to that and the story does explore some elements of that. So it it is what it is. That's my number five. All right. I appreciate it. It's just, you know, it's still upsetting, the whole idea. Yeah, that no, thing. I get it. I get it. Um, um, what is your number four? Yeah, I'll take my number four is very different. Uh, so my number four is 500 Days of Summer. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know you weren't going to like this pick. Ugh, um, I hate that film. I really like this film. Um, that, so That film encompasses all the most annoying attributes of terrible relationships to me. So, okay, 2009 directed by Mark Webb, who we all now know as the Amazing Spider-Man director, which is not an amazing film series. <laughs> but um, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel are in here. Uh, I'm not a huge Zoe Deschanel fan. I think she does a lot of the I'm whimsical stuff. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, that's part of why it annoyed me. Um, I know. You know, I, I think that the storytelling piece was interesting, so I will absolutely give you that. I think the soundtrack was great. And, and oh, you know, amazing soundtrack. this is the thing. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That's why I went to see that film. I was like, yeah. oh, yes, this is great. This is going to be fantastic. I think it's also a very beautiful looking film. It is. Um, but the things that I really hate about it are the fact that I don't really get why he would actually want to be with this person. Um, I didn't ever feel like that was something that was established. Like, so. well, here's what, here's what I, here's why it's in my top five. Um, 
uh, it's not just the music. It's not just how beautifully shot it is and, and all of that. But I think um, it is a modern telling of Annie Hall, whereas mm-hmm. Annie Hall goes forward and backwards linearly um, to to speak to these different points of relationships, the, the happiness, the fights, the anger, the jealousy, all of that kind of stuff. I think 500 Days of Summer, what's nice about it, it goes nonlinear only, I think, four or five times, but there are these critical points in the relationship that give you more information about why Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in this relationship and what's going on. So I, I like how it did that. Um, and it was, you know, the the late 2000s had a lot of really nice indie films that had a larger distribution. Um, and this was one of those great indie films that was like that. I'm also thinking of um, what's the Sunshine movie, Conrad? Um, uh, Eternal? Sunshine? No, not Eternal Sunshine. Um, what is it? Um, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on it. It'll, it'll come back to me once you start talking, I'm sure. But um, there was there were a lot there were a lot of really great films like that in the late 2000s, and and this was uh, I think this was one of them. It it brought some innovation to the rom com um, genre, and I like that. Um, well, my, I, I will give you that. And there were parts of it I did enjoy, but just overall, I was like frustrated watching it. Um, maybe I'm just too empathetic and I want to like get involved in the story in films, which is totally possible. <laughs> um, but, um, that's fine. I, I think I, you're perfectly, that's fine. That I can, be, I get that. that. And it was a little Miss Sunshine that I was thinking of. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, did you like that one? Yes, I love that one. Okay, there we Even go. though there right, were so we... certainly elements of it. I mean, it's dark, but it's a really good film. It is dark, um, yeah. What's your number four, Conrad? Uh, my number four is also possibly controversial. Um, and I will preface this by saying that it's not one of my favorite films, and there were issues that I definitely had with it, but I also found it to be an interesting film, and it, and because I kept thinking about it, and there were things that I, I kept sort of going back to, I added it to this list. Um, but it is Vanilla Sky. Yeah, yeah that was... Okay, now... Well, that uh, is a 2001 film uh, written, directed, um, and co-produced by Cameron Crowe. But it's also it's a remake um, of 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 a Spanish film um, that was made in '97, I believe, um, by Alejandro uh, Amenabar. Um, but it's um, and I would I would sort of say that the the Spanish film is more successful in in the way that it tells the story. Um, this film stars Tom Cruise um, and Penelope Cruz, who actually appeared in both films. Um, but it's basically it's definitely nonlinear in the storytelling um the the sort of you you're following the tom cruise character throughout the film and totally trying to figure out what's going on because it it switches like back and forth to different scenes and it's unclear whether certain things are present whether they're past whether they're dreams um and the end of it is is definitely questionable in terms of what it signifies um, so that's why it ended up on the list, although admittedly I'm conflicted about the film in general. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you kind of summarized the the pros and cons pretty well right there. Um, 
But, you know, I, th- I think that the, the acting was actually very good. I could actually deal with Tom Cruise in this. And as you, you were, <laughs> it's interesting that you were saying that earlier, but you and I both talked about this in our Edge of Tomorrow episode. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it, it wasn't Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise, um, or at least I could at least dissociate that in this particular film. Um, but... Um, it's also a very beautiful film, but it, but that is really, you know, it left a lot of questions that made me want to figure it out, basically. And I still haven't really figured it out, but, um, but it's an interesting idea in any case. Cool. Cool. What's your number three? Uh, the Prestige. Uh-huh, my meld. You got a number for Prestige? Really? Yeah, number, number three. three. Nice. I don't know how this happens. Um, some people are, you know, I think some people question how we do these mind melds but seriously we don't prep these lists together nope um in yeah fact, okay. we, in fact we avoid talking about them for that specific completely, reason completely yeah well i i really love this film um uh, i've mentioned before how i'm a fan of christopher nolan yeah. and uh so he was a director um this is also uh he was one of the screenwriters along with his brother jonathan jonathan nolan uh, and it's based on uh, this uh, story of these interesting characters, these rival magicians, and um, as well as uh, Tesla is, uh, is in this role. Um, but as played by Bale. David Bowie. Yeah, um, I know. David Bowie's Tesla. awesome. Any movie with David Bowie, yay. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it has Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman. Which um, right there, you got Batman Wolverine. I know, um, right? It's kind of it's awesome. It's kind of awesome. Um, it's also a really gorgeous film, um, but the storytelling is phenomenal. It really is. Um, and it's... There are several mysteries going on throughout. Yeah, which reminds me of kind of what we were talking about, Sin City. I think that... I don't non- think... Yeah, and I don't think we should do spoilers on no, this one, by the way. No, we're not spoiler it, but... Or, there, I did it again. Spoiler. Spoiler. Um, it's... It's like Sin City in that the nonlinear format is really helping us to understand this larger plot. Mm-hmm. And the plot is set into motion very early on, and it, it really involves the, the idea of illusion and, uh, and magic and uh, showmanship and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's not until the very end of the film that all of that is revealed. Um, and it is a really, I mean, I while watching it, I had figured out a few things, but not definitely not everything. Um, and so when they did the big reveal at the end, I was like, oh, that's so, nice. you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty clever way to do it. Um, yeah. No, I. Um, and oddly enough, there was another film that came out um, very, like, just almost exactly around the same time, The Illusionist. Yeah, which was um, not as good. Which was definitely not as good. Um, no. But it, but and it was an inter- But it was just interesting that it was. Um, they were both pretty much like I think like very very closely released. Um, like and uh, a lot of the, the illusionist the was two. over the summer, and then the prestige was in the fall. So and a lot of folks confused the two. Some people thought they were going to see the prestige when it was yeah. uh, actually the illusionist, and I also felt bad because w- that summer I was kind of talking about this film, and people were like, "Really? That film wasn't really that good. It was kind of boring." And you're, and you're and like, like, "No, no, you're that's all their movie. No, go see this one." But it's a really, I mean, you know what it is? It's a really fun rainy day movie to watch, don't you think? Oh like it's yeah, a, it's a little bit totally. moody. It's it's fun, and um, I really enjoyed it. I thought Christopher Nolan did a great job, and like all his films, it is definitely beautiful, and the acting is fantastic. Yeah, so. right there with you. 
Yeah. Ah, so um, mind so melt. That was pretty cool. Yeah, so that was our number three. Um, um, I'm going to let you go for number two. Um, my number two is Citizen Kane. <laughs> what? I debated. You give me such a hard time for that one time I put Chris, uh, a Citizen Kane on the list, so I left it off my list. Yeah, but, but in this case, it could actually be put on the list because it matches the category. So it's the, uh, here's the other thing I was debating about Citizen Kane. I mean, I love Citizen Kane. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Um, it, there, it is nonlinear um, because, it, you know, the very first scene is uh, the character's death. Right. And um, the and story then, you then have, goes you're back. you're told in many different flashbacks. And I think that the reason why I picked this is because in terms of using this as a storytelling device, it's one of the earlier ones. Um, and it's just a very, very cool film. I love it. Um, and yeah. and then the big reveal in terms of the end, you Which know. Which we won't spoil. We shouldn't spoil. It's like one of those biggest spoilers yeah, of all time. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't, even though I'm sure everybody knows. But, um, yeah. but anyway, it was one of those things. And once again, it's one of those films that... I have definitely watched more than once. So, and absolutely. If I ever have a dog, I'm going to name him Orson Welles. Uh, that's a. That's, there actually used to be good. a dog running around this neighborhood um, that Bill and I would see, and I don't know what the dog's actual name was, but we would call it Orson Welles because he just <laughs> kind of looked like Orson Welles. <laughs> I've got um, I've got two names that I want to name a dog, and New Anne has kind of vetoed both. Um, one is Gort. Um, That's and a I terrible like, name for a dog. Why is that a terrible name? Because why it, is it, Gort? it kind of is, it's just a gross name. I don't like that what? name. Ugh, I think it's Gort. so cute. So it comes from um, a, a, a psychological test called the Gray Oral Reading Test. That's a terrible and name. I just, okay, all right, fine. The other I agree, name I, I knew Ann and I are on the same page on this. All okay. right, well, you might like my second one better, which is Barkley. Oh, that's a good name, but that's like yeah. Sesame Street, right? No, well, yes, but it's also... Um, uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. I think it. I think doesn't Sesame Street predate that? It might, but that I'm thinking more the character Barkley from Next Generation, who uh, Jean Luc Picard famously calls uh, uh, broccoli. What <laughs> what episode? Anyways, but that's that's a different episode. I, I think uh, you should put time. photos of both in the show notes. How do you, how do you like that? We could do that. We can do Barkley that. from Sesame Street and, and Barkley from. From. Next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay. All right. So getting back to our show. Yeah. So what's um, your number two? My number two is adaptation. Um, this is the. You know what? I that was in my honorable mentions. I almost put it on the list, but I felt like Citizen Kane had to have a place there. So. Sure. I, I mean. But yeah, it's no, hard, that's it's absolutely. Hard, that it's is hard ab- to trump Citizen Kane. I know, uh, but it's hard. But adaptation is just. It is one of those films, and it's so. Uh, it really packs a punch. It does, and I think we talked about it just a little bit in our second episode, which was on her, Spike Jonze's film um, from uh, much earlier in the year. So Adaptation is a 2002 film from Spike Jonze, uh, written by Charlie Kaufman, and it's it's a really cool um, narrative just in general, where the story is about um, Nicolas Cage's character playing Charlie Kaufman, um, adapting this book, The Orchard Thief. Mm-hmm. And the film is about the orchid, adaptation. Orchid Thief. Orchid Thief. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The Orchid Thief. And it's, If you were it's, thieving in an orchard, there'd just be, it'd be very different. 
It'd be a different story. Um, and it's it jumps in between the story of him adapting the story as well as what the story will look like. And it, it's very meta. Um, there's points where he's talking about, well, you need to add a car chase and you need to make the film more interesting. And then in the next few frames, mm-hmm. you begin to see that happen. Right. It's, uh, it's a very clever film, but it's also yeah. a very heavy film. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it is. so hard. It, there's parts of it I find so hard, so hard well, to it, watch. It but... gets very existential. It right. gets to some uh, some pretty heavier themes and material, and I like that. Um, it, there's a lot to chew on in this film, but it's definitely like you're talking about Prestige, where it's a great rainy day film. I don't think adaptations that great of a rainy day film you probably want to watch this movie when you're in a little bit more of a cheery mood so you can kind of like yeah counteract it yeah 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 but it's a good one i really like spike jones we've both talked about how much we like him as a director and uh this is one of uh one of his uh best films and most interesting and unique probably on this top five list Hmm. um all right can i reveal my number one go for it conrad um so not my number one um I actually, in this top five, there are two Christopher Nolan films for me. Um, So my number one came out in 2000, and it was Memento, um, with Guy Pearce, um, Carrie Ann Moss, um, were two of the the main folks in that. Um, It's one of those films... Conrad. What? It's my number one, too. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. It's my number one pick, Memento. (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised because seriously, this is probably <laughs> the best nonlinear film I've ever seen. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's one of those films like I remember going. I saw. Did you see it in the theater? Uh, no, I saw it on DVD. Um, I saw it in the theater, and it was, um, you know, I was. I, I remember the weekend. Like I went to see it. I was like, okay, you know, I I I just couldn't deal with like the bigger blockbusters and whatever. And I had read a little bit about it, but not enough to spoil it. And it was a pretty empty theater that I went to see it in. Um, And I remember being like, what? I I actually spoke out loud in the theater during certain reveals that they they pull in this film. Um, It was just such a clever way to do things. It was a very clever way of storytelling. Um, And the things that are revealed within it are so dark and weird and... um, you know, and you you question different things about the character. So I I know that I have seen this at least five times, um, yeah. just to try to figure out certain things. Um, and then you know, online people have resplice this to make it uh, to to make the story told in the linear fashion, and it's certainly not successful. No, it's not like Pulp Fiction. If yep. you watch those those recuts, it just doesn't. It doesn't uh, work. It doesn't no. work as I mean, part of the intrigue and the interest. And I don't want to spill this. Uh, spill, sorry, spoil this <laughs> or spoilery this, as you would say. Um, <laughs> I like your spoileries. They're the best. I, I kind of like it. I like it. Too, yeah. I like your. I like your word. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> anyway, it it's one of those films that I think. Um, like I don't want I don't want to mess it up if people haven't seen it and I don't want to do it here so um, because you you kind of have to you kind of have to watch it to get it but I I, I think we can say the premise the premise is revealed in the very first moment of the film and you basically realize that there's a character due to certain events has lost the ability to form new memories it's it's a real world condition called interrogate amnesia that's how actually I learned about this film Um, I had seen Christopher Nolan uh, Christopher Nolan did Pi right that was one of his first films so I saw that 
was also I, w- uh, I was going to put pie on this, but no, this was pie is kind of like weird and wacky. It is super weird, points. but I really liked it. Um, no, me too, me but, too. And I had seen that before. I had seen Memento, but I didn't really hear about Memento. And one of my cognitive psychology professors actually assigned it as an extra credit assignment. And so um, that's why I saw Memento. And we were supposed to review um, the, how realistic the, um, the amnesia was. And I won't spoiler it. Or There I go again. <laughs> I, won't, I won't spoiler what I wrote in my paper. But if you're interested, you can tweet me and I'll, I'll let you know what I thought of that. Um, but what's cool about this uh, and why it's on our top five, I think, is um, it, it is a story that um, – tells the story of amnesia and does it, which if you have this condition, you're constantly living in the present and you have some memories about the past, but you are always dealing with what's immediately there in front of you and you're losing the ability to move forward in time, basically. And it does that in the film and the film is kind of moving in these opposite directions where we're learning more about the character and as we're learning more about the character, we're getting more into the past. And that's really interesting. Um, I know last week we were talking about the mystery, uh, a mystery box and this movie is very much so a this mystery is, this box. This is a big old mystery box. Um, yeah. But the other things that are dealt with here, there's like a ton of different things, which I can imagine why this was assigned as extra credit for your class. Um, <laughs> but there's like a ton of, you know, there there it addresses issues or, or characters within this uh, are dealing with issues of grief. Um, they're def- it's definitely, um, there's different treatments um, in terms of perception and how people are are dealing with certain things when you don't have all the information, and and I think definitely the um, you know something you and I have talked a bit before in terms of people like to fill in the blanks. So if you don't have all the information, how do you fill in the blanks? Um, and there's the main character is is trying to do a lot of that based on very little little information, and he has little tools to try to help himself fill in the blanks. But it you know it's a large part of the film is is trying to figure that out um and whether it's successful or not um and it's it's just very it is such a well done film there are definitely a couple of holes in it but this one kept me like i was obsessed with this for like weeks after yeah no me too me too and um it's uh it, it's one. It's probably the one on this list, and probably the one on this show that'll give you the biggest headache when you when you leave yeah, the no, theater. Yeah, no, it does. Because there, there's so much to think about and try to piece together. It is a very jarring experience, and it is. It's probably the one I would say. Um, uh, it, this shouldn't be your first introduction to the non-linear format. If you're listening to this show, and for some reason you haven't seen any of the other films we've talked about, yeah, don't about, start with Memento. Don't start with Memento because <laughs> it is, you know what? Maybe it's just my, I, like, I don't know. Like I, because I was obsessed with this, it was, but it was one of those like weird little niggling, like puzzles that you're just thinking about and still trying to figure out. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's yeah. That is it's, so. That is I. So mind meld. Wait, we did not mind meld on number one and number three. three. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, both are Christopher Nolan films. Uh, yeah. So you know, I, I, well, he it, like, always has something weird about time he, going on. Yeah, you know, like him and Tarantino. 
um, and I guess Rodriguez as well, they like the nonlinear element. Because I was also thinking about Inception, which I left off the list because we've talked about that too. Yeah, uh, no, and, and it, obviously, you know, we, we talked about it extensively, so I didn't want to put it on here. But. Yeah, but Christopher Nolan, he, he does this well. He likes to mess with that. Um, um, but anyway. Did you have any honorable mentions this week? Um, the, just the ones we had mentioned initially, yeah. Kill Bill, Watchmen, Eternal Sunshine. Um, I yeah. also put Six Sense, obviously, on there, and, and um, Go, which is sort of like, a uh, pulp fiction light for teenagers. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, no. Um, it has Sarah Polly in it and, and Scott Wolf. And I remember it coming out. I just didn't um, see it. it didn't, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's entertaining. Um, I have not rewatched it, so I don't know how it holds up. But even while I was watching it, I was like, oh, look, it's like a, it's like a, a younger pulp fiction ish type thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my, my honorable mentions are the same as yours. Uh, Eternal Sunshine, Kill Bill, Annie Hall, Pan's Labyrinth, Looper, Sixth Sense, Go, uh, Watchmen, the ones you just all mentioned. Oh, I also, uh, uh, Usual Suspects is definitely on there, uh, too. Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, dear listeners, please let us know uh, what is on your top five uh, non-linear films. What did you think of Pulp Fiction versus Sixth Sense? And just what are your thoughts in general now, 20 years later, looking back at uh, Pulp Fiction? You can reach us online at NerdHour on Twitter. Uh, you can email us at info at superfantasticnerdhour.com. And check out our website, uh, superfantasticnerdhour.com. Or if you're super lazy, you can just do nerdhour.com. That'll take you there, too. We've got a cool list of uh, essential episodes of this show, if you're new to the show. We've also uh, checked out some of our uh, Friends of the Show page that we just updated. Uh, Conrad, where can people find you online this week? Um, online, I... I am on Twitter, Die Prince, um, and then on my other zombie podcast, Dead Podcast, Undead Podcast. It's uh, reanimatedpodcast.com or reanimatedpcast on Twitter. Um, I, and where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Matu. I am also the science fiction psychologist at brainknowsbetter.com. And uh, yeah, those are the places. So come chat. Um, Until next time. Uh, Live long and prosper. Indeed.